Amen. Well, if you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is, uh, is where we're going to be this morning. I want to start by bringing you greetings from our partners in northern India, from Brent and Melinda Snader. They were, they were very grateful to you guys for sending us and for the ongoing partnership that we have there. Uh, we want to we find a chance to give you many, many more details about what we learned and about how you can connect with the work that they're doing there. The first opportunity for that will be next week at our members' meeting on August 5th. We're going to, part of that agenda will be to share some reports from our time in India and from our team's trip over to Central Asia earlier this summer. So, so that's, that's step one. And then we're going to be looking for other opportunities later. But, um, but for now, let me just say how grateful that they were to have our church care about them and to support them in meaningful ways, including sending, sending a team over. So thank you for supporting us and for praying for us. God did uh, answer our prayers in every, in every respect that we prayed. So thank you. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 10. As, as, as probably most of you who know me well know, uh, I've, I've confessed this on many occasions, I am a recovering people pleaser. And if you're like me in this, then you know what it feels like. You know, and you're probably like me, that I'm most comfortable and I'm most happy in a relationship when I'm confident that I've pleased the person in question, right? When I know that they are happy about how I've treated them or how I've performed relative to them or, or whatever, happy about, happy about whatever it is that's, that's pertinent to that particular relationship, when I know that they're good, then I'm the most happy and confident in that relationship. And on the flip side, when I haven't pleased the person in question, there's a serious disruption in that relationship. They may not know it. They may not be holding anything against me. They may, they, they may think things are fine. But if I get the sense that, that they aren't quite happy with me, then that makes me insecure. It makes me sometimes want to withdraw from them. Sometimes it, it just makes me uncomfortable anytime I'm around them because being around them reminds me of my failure. Anytime I see them, my mind goes to what I've, what I've failed to do and how I've let them down. And this, this is true whether or not they're actually holding anything against me or not. That, that, that part doesn't really matter. This is about my neurosis, right? When, I, when I'm around them, it's a reminder to me that I've, that I've failed somehow. Now, that sense of failure keeps me from enjoying the relationship as I'm meant to enjoy it. It keeps me from, from really connecting with them, from thriving in relationship with them. Now, we never want to hold up fear of people as a model, right? Because that's a kind of idolatry. But even labeling it idolatry, I think that really implies that there is somebody out there who we should feel that way about. That actually to fear God in the way that I fear people is not wrong, but actually it's right. To, to always be asking whether or not I have done what God has required of me is a healthy thing because I have been created. I have been created to please him. And apart from pleasing him, my whole purpose for being is thrown into question. The problem is that none of us, none of us, have pleased him. The message of the Bible, one that we've been tracing in Hebrews, but that you can find pretty much anywhere in the Bible story, is that we have failed the purpose for which we were made. 
that we have traded God in for substitutes. A lot of times it's just ourselves. Maybe it's something else for you. We fail to please him. And the relationship with God, the relationship for which we were made, bears the same kind of marks in it, the same kind of brokenness, the same disruption that's present when a people pleaser fails to please a person in question. It bears marks of insecurity, maybe of resentment, maybe of apathy. And maybe you've never put this label on it, but if that's where you are, struggling with your relationship with God, then that's what's going on under the surface. I think that Hebrews has presented itself to us as a solution for this problem. The problem that we have failed to please, the God that we were made to please. The passage today jumps right into this this old covenant system that we've been tracing together for so long. The system that you can see played out in the pages of the Old Testament. A system of ancient sacrifices and rituals that seem so far removed from our own context. And the way that it's described this system to us, for all the details, on the, on the big picture, the way it's described this system is as a system put into place to show us that we haven't pleased God and that we can't unless something drastic happens. The inability of this old system to fix the problem of our failure leads to a problem of conscience, a consciousness that we haven't done what was necessary, a reminder, the way our passage puts it today, a reminder that we've sinned. And that's what keeps our relationship with God from being healthy. That's that's part one of our passage this morning. Hebrews has also been consistently putting a different picture in front of us. The second part of our passage is to show how Jesus, that if you really want to understand the significance of Jesus, here's a great way to understand it. Boil it down to this. Jesus came to fix the problem that we had created. He came because we could not, and we failed, utterly failed to please God. So Jesus came to please him for us once and for all. That's the, that's the, the system that our passage sets up this morning. Uh, really, it's kind of repetitive. If you've been here for for any, any amount of time, even for the last couple of months, then the themes I just introduced you to are themes you've been, you've been hearing about for a while. So what I hope we can do today is see this as a kind of summary of what we've seen so far to really get a, make sure we have a firm handle as we leave this section of the letter on what it was about this old system that failed to please God and how Jesus coming into this world perfectly pleased him and pleased him not just for his own sake but for ours too that's the big picture what we want to leave with is a sense of how we can be pleasing to god even though we failed because of jesus that's where we're headed this morning if you found hebrews chapter 10 why don't you go ahead and stand up in honor of god's word as i read from verses 1 to 10 this is the word of the lord from hebrews chapter 10 For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, 
When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is God's word. You can be seated. We want to talk about Israel's problem, the problem that the first four verses in our text describes for us, and how we, too, share the problem that they had. And then we want to talk about Jesus' purpose, his purpose to solve that problem, and how Jesus' purpose sets the purpose for our lives. That's where we're headed this morning, starting in verse 1, Israel's problem and our problem. Like I said, we've, the, the language in these first four verses should be really familiar to us by now. If, if you've been with us for any amount of time in this study of Hebrews, what we've been seeing is that Hebrews is, is playing in a world that is far different from our own, a world that is full of ancient laws and priests and blood sacrifices these priests were made to offer. And, and for all the cultural distance between that time and ours, what we've also been seeing is that the problems that that old system was set up to address are problems that we share now just as surely as Israel did. The problem it was set up to address is the problem of human failure. That the God that we were made to please and the relationship with him we were made to enjoy has been spurned by us. And what these laws and practices that God designed for Israel, what they were there to do was to provide a sort of case study using Israel as a, as a, as an, a one one sort of example of the whole of humanity's problems, what, it, what, the, what this system was there to do was to show that something much more drastic was going to be needed before a real solution to the problem was coming. Something, something much more drastic was needed. This system was designed only to point like a shadow to something else that would come later. And this, these first four verses summarize that case. Verse 1 summarizes the summary, sort of. Since the law is just a shadow of the things to come, it can never make perfect those who draw near by it. Then verses 2 and 3 say, we see that this is already the case because, verse 2 says, if it, was, if it had made them perfect, why would they have to keep coming back over and over again? Isn't just the fact that these sacrifices are offered over and over just a, a sign that, that it hasn't made anybody perfect, it hasn't solved anything? And verse 3 explains that, that, that really all these sacrifices do is just remind us of the fact that we're not perfect. So you see how, ver- how these verses work together? Verse 1, the law was just a shadow. These sacrifices couldn't perfect anyone. We know that because they keep having to be offered over and over again. And the fact that they keep having to be offered over and over again is really just a reminder to us that we aren't okay. Verse 4 explains why. These sacrifices could not perfect those who brought them. The bottom line is that the blood of bulls and goats just can't take away sin. It's just not good enough. 
what we've been saying in our, in, all along is that blood is necessary. The reason all these blood sacrifices have been described in such great detail and the, and the reason they were so central to this old way of doing things is that blood is where the life is. And apart from that, there's no way to make up for what you've done. When, when, if, if, if we've sinned against the God to whom we owe absolutely everything, then there's no way to pay him something we don't already owe, short of giving him all of our lives. We talked about it as, as what we see even in our own legal system, that the punishment has got to fit the crime, right? If you squash a, a, a roach in your house, there's no crime. That Nobody really cares about the life of a roach. If you kill someone's dog, then you're probably going to have to pay some sort of fine for that, right? But if you kill another person, well, then that could cost you your life because your life is as valuable as that person's life. And there's, so, the, so the punishment system is a balancing act. What we've been seeing is that the, 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 the sacrifices called for by the old law, they just aren't valuable enough. That punishment doesn't fit the crime because we owe everything to God. And to, to have failed him even once is to, is to implicate our entire lives. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. So here's the summary. The law and its sacrifices were definitely a gift of God. They were, they were something God designed to make a relationship with him possible, at least some sort of relationship with him possible. But they came with severe built-in limitations, limitations that God designed on purpose to point ahead to what he was, what he was planning to do. Under, under the old covenant system, the system we've been describing in such detail over the past couple months, even the means for coming to God even these sacrifices that they brought in order to get access to God, even those things reinforced how serious and how ongoing their problem was. And, and in that reinforcement, I think what we see is two different problems. Two, or maybe, maybe a better way to put it is two aspects of the same problem that this system is meant to show. One is a legal problem, the one I've been hinting at already, that there's a debt here, a debt to God, that is owed that these sacrifices just can't get rid of. That's what you might call the objective problem. It's outside of you. It's there hanging over you, a sentence that you can't get out from under. But in these sacrifices that are offered every year and show that that legal problem has not been taken care of, there's also another kind of problem, a more personal problem, what you might call a subjective problem. And that's the reminder that these things provide over and over again that we do have this huge debt that we can't get out from under. So not only are we guilty, it's like we just can't escape that fact. We can't even dull ourselves to it because in this system, you've got to make these sacrifices over and over again. They offer a reminder of sin. Now, we've, we've talked about this using several illustrations, but... Uh, but one in particular that I think works really well here for this passage is the one that Bill used a couple weeks back in his sermon, the one of an interest-only mortgage. You guys know how interest-only mortgages work. You, it's, it's a mortgage that you're, that you're probably not quite qualifying for. You don't have enough to make a down payment on it, to, to knock enough off the principal. And so as a, as a creative way to get you in the house anyway, they... Uh, sometimes will offer you a mortgage that you just pay the interest on each month and you never knock down any principal. The way Bill talked about uh, the, the, this illustration is that, that really when you get that monthly bill, there's a sense in which that's an act of grace, right? that, 
that these, these mortgage companies made it possible for you to live in this house by this really creative solution that allows you just to pay the interest on your mortgage and never pay any principal. But there's also a monthly reminder, like a really significant reminder of the fact that you owe more than you can pay, that your debt is not going anywhere, and that the money you're sending is not chipping away at it at all. And there's a reminder to you that every, just in the sheer fact that you're getting it each month, you're being reminded of, of this great debt that you owe. So there's the objective problem that you're not getting anywhere, and the subjective problem that you're constantly being reminded about it every time that bill hits, hits, the, hits the, the door. And, and you know what? Honestly, this is exactly what these sacrifices were meant to do. They were meant to show you that every year you made one, you weren't really getting any closer to paying down the debt. And by having to make them every year, they were meant to remind you that you weren't getting any closer to paying down the debt. The whole system was meant to prove to you that you needed something more. That if this relationship was going to be healed, it was going to take a drastic action. I wonder... I wonder if you are uneasy in your relationship with God this morning. If you may have a sense that you're not good with God. If, I, wonder, I wonder if that's how you feel. If you've identified maybe that under the surface the problem is that you've recognized, maybe not put this label on it, but you've recognized that you haven't pleased him. That you have failed him and he remembers it and he, and he doesn't like it. If this is where you are, it could show itself in many different ways, probably in the same ways that my people-pleasing shows itself when I feel like I haven't pleased someone I wanted to please. Maybe it shows itself in insecurity. When I haven't pleased someone, one of the, one of the constant, or one of the really regular signs is, is that I'm just kind of weak when I'm around them. I don't know what to do or say. I'm constantly on edge, trying not to mess up again, Right? Sometimes it's insecurity. Sometimes it shows itself in resentment. I resent the fact that you're not pleased with me. You know, you kind of get past the insecurity and then I start blaming you for not being pleased with me. I start to think that your displeasure says more about you than it says about me. And maybe that's where you are with God. That's a common place to be. You sense that maybe he isn't thinking about you in the way you wish he was. He isn't pleased in the way that you wish he was. And so you begin to resent him for it. Maybe it looks like apathy. Isn't that often how we respond when we haven't pleased someone? We, if, especially if it's a, a pattern over time and we just get tired of trying to please them and so our response is just sort of to check out of that relationship. We just sort of give up on it. Have you done that with God? If any of these describe how you're feeling about him, that could be, whether you realize it or not, it could be that you're responding to the sense that God isn't pleased with you. And if, if you've never trusted in Jesus, then, the, then, then what you're responding to is actually true. God isn't pleased with you. And there's nothing you can do about it. the message of Hebrews is that God has done something about it. God has done something about it in Jesus. In Jesus, God has been perfectly pleased. And in Jesus, 
you can be perfectly pleasing to God. That's the beautiful point of verses 5 to 10. Verses 5 to 10 tell us about Jesus' purpose in coming into the world. Verse 5 starts right at where verse 4 leaves off with this sense of a problem that the blood of bulls and goats could never solve. And then it says, consequently, because of this problem that sacrifices couldn't get rid of, Jesus came into the world. When Christ came into the world, he said, the solution to this problem is put once again into the, into the words of the Psalms. We've been seeing that a lot in Hebrews, that, that Psalms is one of the best places for understanding how Jesus uh, came, how he understood his own mission, what he came to do, and this is no exception. Here we get a quote from Psalm 40, and our writer puts it right in Jesus' mouth, as if Jesus was the one saying these words, originally written thousands of years ago. And here is what he says. It's, it's a repetitive comparison between God not being satisfied with sacrifices and offerings and God being satisfied with what Jesus brought. Watch this comparison as we move through it. Verse 5 says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. That's verse 1 to 4, right? A system that just couldn't get the job done. It could not be pleasing to God. It's not what he wanted. That's part 1 of the comparison. But, in its place, a body you have prepared for me. We'll say more about that in a minute. Verse Six, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. That's verses one to four. That's not what God wanted. He could not get the job done. But, verse seven, behold, I have come to do your will, as it is written of me. I have come to do your will. Verses eight and nine make the same exact contrast, just sort of restating what the psalm says. Verse 8 reminds them that the psalm says God didn't want sacrifices and offerings. That, those weren't pleasing to him. Those couldn't get the job done. But in its place, verse 9 says, I have come to do your will. So do you see what's being set up here? The old system is referred to in the first part of these comparisons and what Jesus came to bring in the second part of these comparisons. Because this old system could not please God, Jesus came to please God. A body was prepared for him, one that he could move around in, one that he could obey God in, one that he could give up as a sacrifice that could do what God wanted it to do. A body you prepared for me, and I have come to do your will, O God. Can't you see how even in that one simple statement, what we have is Jesus reversing the failure of all of us. Ultimately, we were made to be God's image, to show what he's like, in the world to do his will and we failed to do his will so in its place Jesus has come to do God's will verse 10 summarizes what Jesus accomplished by that will the will that Jesus was faithful to the will that he completely fulfilled we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all so what I want to ask is how does this work how does it work that Jesus pleases God and we get credit for it? And then how does that change how we approach God? Those are the two questions I want to, I want to finish up with. I think that what's described here is pretty clear. I hope you guys are with me. That this old system could not please God. It couldn't solve the problem that we had failed to please him. And so, in its place, Jesus comes and does God's will perfectly. And in, his, in doing his will, he makes it possible for us to please God. That's what the passage describes. Now we want, to, we want to drill down on this and try to understand how does this work, this exchange between Jesus and us? And then how does that change how we come to God as those who are now pleasing to him, not displeasing to him? Those are the two questions 
I want us to drill down on now and what time we've got left. So first, how does this work, this exchange? The passage tells us Jesus took on a body that was prepared for him so that he could identify with us and act for us. This is the central concept in all of Christianity. It is at the heart of what Christians believe. And that's been a focus of Hebrews from the beginning. The, the idea that, that's, that one person can stand for others, can represent them and how they behave or what, how they perform, honestly, that's, sometimes that strikes us as a little bit unjust, but it's not that far from our experience. I spent a good chunk of yesterday watching the Olympics. Right? I love the Olympics. It is literally the only time in a four-year window where I would spend an hour watching people shoot arrows at targets. But I did this yesterday. And the Americans were shooting for gold. They, they failed to get the gold, but nevertheless. Like normally, if, if I had just been passing by one of the 16 ESPN channels and they happened to be featuring archery that day, and it was like James Madison University versus you know, some other little liberal arts college, I'm not going to stop. I don't care about that. But why did I spend an hour watching it? Because in the Olympics, those guys stand for me, right? They're Americans. That's why you watch it. Because they, they play for us, right? So similarly, Hebrews has talked about Jesus representing us in a whole host of ways. It's talked about him fighting death for us and triumphing it over it for us. It's talked about him standing for us as a high priest. It's talked about Jesus identifying with us as an older brother, a brother who represents the family as the firstborn and whose, whose track record stands for the rest of the family. And now we get a new representation. Now Jesus is the one who does God's will for us. Here he stands for us in doing God's will. I think God's will here has two aspects to it. I think on the one hand, it's, it's him doing the things God commanded. He was faithful where we were unfaithful. His track record was different from ours. But then, especially the way it's used in verse 10, I think it's also him doing the will of God for his life in particular. God's will to save us through him. He was faithful to the end in going to the cross because God wanted to save us and Jesus fulfilled that will. So both those concepts of God's will, his will of command that all of us have failed, Jesus is faithful to, and his, his will to save that he announced even from the very earliest pages of Genesis and has, has been working towards through the whole story of the Bible is now fulfilled in Jesus. Think about Jesus' life. Think about how he... He succeeded where we fail. Think about how patient he was when his disciples let him down over and over again. Think about how faithful he was to seek God, even in the face of temptation. Think about how the evil one even offered him all the kingdoms of this world, the things that we go for with every ounce of our being, and he said no because he trusted his father. Think about how he interacted even with prostitutes and did not objectify them, but treated them as those made in God's image and worthy of his brotherly affection. Think about how everywhere we fail, Jesus succeeded. And know that he did that not to show us how to do it, but he did it for us. This is, this is put really well, I think, in a book that I recently read by N.T. Wright, a book called Simply Christian. Wright says, Christianity isn't about Jesus offering a wonderful moral example. That's not what it means for him to have come and, and done God's will, as this passage describes. 
as though our principal need was to see what a life of utter love and devotion to God and to other people would look like so we could try to copy it. If that had been Jesus' main purpose, we could certainly say it had some effect. Some people's lives really have been changed simply by contemplating and imitating the example of Jesus. But observing Jesus' example could equally well simply make a person depressed. Watching Richter play the piano or Tiger Woods hit a golf ball doesn't inspire me to go out and copy them. It makes me realize that I can't come close and I never will. Christianity, right, writes elsewhere, is about something that happened. Something that happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Christianity isn't about what Jesus calls us to. It gets there, but that's not first and foremost what it's about. It is about something Jesus did. Something that happened to him. A life of perfect obedience given freely for us and a life that could not be held by the grave. That's, that's what Christianity is about. And that's what our passage says Jesus came for. So what our passage calls us to is to give up trying to please God on our own. You haven't pleased him, and that means that you can't. That ship has sailed because you owed him everything, and you've already failed to give it to him, so you're done. It's a losing game. So trust Jesus. Jesus perfectly pleased God. And he did it for you if you rest everything on him. That's how this works, verses 5 to 10. I want to close by saying just something brief about how this changes our approach to God. Where I started this morning was with how I think the system that Hebrews has been talking about has a parallel in how we treat each other. If we feel like we haven't pleased someone, it, it leads to certain Responses, emotional responses in us that, that really we kind of carry around a sense of guilt or maybe just a sense of insecurity in our relationship with them and that, that ultimately that's what these sacrifices highlighted in Israel's relationship with God, that he wasn't completely safe for them because they had not pleased him. And that Jesus came in to perfectly please him in a way that we failed to do so that we could now have the status of those who have pleased God. Through an exchange of his track record for ours and his death for the death that we were supposed to die. So if that's who we are now, what does it look to relate to God in light of who we are? That's the last question. I think this sets us free to respond well when we fail. And it sets us free to obey God with confidence. This is how it changes our approach with God to know that we have been perfectly pleasing to him in Jesus. It sets us free to respond well when we fail on one hand and it sets us free to obey God with confidence on the other hand. It sets us free to respond well to failure. A lot of times the way we describe it when we fail, the sense of the, the feeling that we get, how, what it feels like inside of us is that we feel guilty. And I think that's, that's fine enough at one, one level. I don't think we mean anything sinister by that. But I think that this passage would, would call us to a different sort of vocabulary. When we, when, we, when we disobey God now, as those who are perfectly pleasing to him in Jesus, but still fall short of pleasing to him in our actual daily lives, what we should feel is not a sense of guilt, because guilt has been removed from us once and for all by Jesus. 
What we should feel now, what it would look like to respond well to our failure now, is, is what Paul calls a godly sorrow. There is a godly sorrow, Paul tells us, that leads to repentance. It's the same kind of sorrow that you might feel when you let down a parent who you know loves you unconditionally, who, who you're not afraid would give up on you if you failed them. Almost, I, I imagine it's almost harder to fail that kind of parent than it would be to fail one who, who was always angry at you. Because what you feel when you fail that kind of parent is a deep sorrow that you have let down someone that you love. When we sin, when we fail to to please in our experience the one who is pleased with us forever, once and for all in Jesus, I think that's how we respond. Not through carrying around guilt over our shoulders like this burden, like this crushing load, but through a kind of sorrow that drives us back to Jesus, that reminds us that, that these actions do have consequences. These are the very things that took his life in order to heal our relationship with God. They're not okay. And that causes a kind of sorrow that's healthy. But it's only healthy when it, when it doesn't go to guilt, when what it does is, is drive us to repentance and to a deeper affection for Jesus. That's how we respond, I think, on this side of Jesus being perfectly pleasing to God for us. And I think it sets us free to obey with confidence. I think a common knee-jerk reaction that folks have when they they hear this claim that Jesus has done everything necessary for us, that there's nothing more to do to to please God, he's he's perfectly handled that, and we're good, that we own that status and we we can't lose it, I think one of the knee-jerk reactions is to say, well, that, that sort of undercuts any attempt to obey. I mean, why should we care? Because we already have the status that we can't lose, then our obedience is kind of irrelevant. That response is wrong on a number of levels. I mean, it's, it's just deeply wrong, as understandable as it might be. But what I want to say here is that it's, it's actually wrong on the level of experience. I don't think this is how we respond when we have the sense that we have pleased someone that we want to please in human relationships. So, for example, I always felt, when I was in graduate school, I always felt that I did my best work that I was set free to work with most confidence and joy when I knew that I had pleased my advisor or whoever with the work I'd already done. So if I turned in a first draft of a paper and they affirmed it, they liked what was there, then I felt like the next draft or the next paper the next time around, I wasn't carrying around the same kind of baggage of insecurity and guilt and just squeamishness that I would if they had not liked it. I was set free, almost cut loose by that affirmation by the sense that I had pleased them. And that gave, me, that gave me a power to obey with confidence. I think that's the effect that our status in Jesus is meant to have on our obedience now. Because we obey God not as those who have to obey him in order to earn his favor. His favor is ours. It's a gift that Jesus has earned by his life. But it sets us free to please him because we want to. To please him from a position of confidence and not insecurity. Ultimately, Ultimately, what we have here in Hebrews 10 is the promise that, the, that, that what we read about in Zephaniah 3 has come true. Zephaniah 3 is a, one, of, one of my favorite passages in all the prophets. It's a, a promise that comes to Judah on the back end of a promise that they were going to be judged. 
The promise that judgment would not have the final word, but that there would come a time when God would rejoice over them. That the same God who had sent judgment on them because they had so failed Him, who had been so wounded and grieved by their rejection of Him, would one day not no longer be wounded or grieved over them, but would rejoice. He would be perfectly pleased in them. Zephaniah 3 promises that the Lord is in your midst, that He is mighty to save that he will rejoice over you with gladness, that he will quiet you with his love. And Hebrews 10 promises that in Jesus, that promise has come true. In Jesus, God rejoices over you. When he looks at you, what he sees is Jesus' perfect once and for all track record. And in that identity, you are set free. You are set free to obey him not out of fear, but out of love, to run after the feeling of God rejoicing over you. That's the beautiful promise of Hebrews 10. Let's pray that God will make it so for us. Lord, help us to, <clears throat> help us to live from this place of confidence, of stability. I know that that stability has been hard won. It cost Jesus his blood. Help us not to live in a way that calls it into question, to live with fear and insecurity, to to live as if that foundation were not strong and secure. Help us instead. Help us instead to obey with confidence and joy because we know that you already are rejoicing over us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for that perfect doing of your will. Thank you for applying it to us. And now help us to own it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.